0: You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area local investors, local knowledge, local
1: experts. Our journey starts now. Hey, everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate broker with Arla Real Estate and a member of the District Invest Group. We've got our normal guests here, Jack Sadd and Sarah Frank, but we got a really special guest this week that we flew in all the way from Charlotte.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So I think one of the most important things we want to ask you, Natalie, is how do we pronounce your last name? That's.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, normally people just get to the K sound and just kind of mumble the rest, and that's fine. But it's actually Kaladi.
1: Kaladi, not Kolodij.
2: I mean, you can, that's fancy. You can do that if you'd like. I think that's what he did like two podcasts ago. Yeah.
1: I was like,
0: uh,
1: uh, yeah. And that's funny. Cause I, <laughs> I know like I've heard it, but I read it so much more than I hear it. So I tend to imagine it wrong in my head.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No one ever gets it right. And everyone wants to guess it. It's like the favorite game of TSA agents. Whenever I try to fly is trying to guess it correctly.
1: So one of the things I think we should always preposition with this. So you're a tax expert, right? Mm -hmm. You work uh, mainly with real estate professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, And while this is the time of the year that we are often talking about taxes, it's actually the worst time of the year to try to find a tax professional.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is like trying to get a turkey on Thanksgiving Day. Like no one's going to have one. Um, You want to find a tax person in like October for the upcoming year. Um, And then really you want to be working with a tax person through the year ahead of tax time because otherwise the game's over and we're just sort of reporting the score if you're talking for the first time in january or february
1: yeah because what's already happened in the past has already happened there's no way to change that or have strategized what you did already exists
2: yeah your cards have been dealt and we're just sort of there's nothing we can do to re uh give you a new hand there we're just sort of working with what you got
1: What would you say is the sort of percentage of people that are trying to contact you in, you know, March and April?
2: Not too damn many.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's the latest up to that April 15th deadline you have people uh, have tried to get you to work with them?
2: Oh, the the weekend of like people will call you on April 15th and be like, well, my stuff's really organized. If I just get it to you tonight, can't you? The answer is no. (laughs) The answer is no. And also honestly, at this point, probably most, Kind of bigger tax firms or kind of a better tax professional won't be taking new clients at this point.
0: Yeah, is this your way of saying that you don't have a, a tax accountant right now and you need one? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is the whole reason I'm here. This was is a ploy. Exactly? This isn't yeah, even an error. Like, like asking
0: a lot of questions about when you can get a tax accountant.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've just been telling Russell every year that there's no more. It's too late, and so
1: <laughs> he hasn't paid taxes in six years. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling if uh, Natalie looked at my taxes, she would not be happy with the work that my current tax professional does. Because actually, we talked about this earlier. Um, you were saying that there's a particularly high percentage of a amendment you do on new clients' returns.
2: Yeah, just because someone is a tax professional does not mean they know real estate. Like by a long shot, it's so different than a standard business. And there's so many weird, like I don't want to say loopholes, but there's just different rules to it. A- to real estate than a normal business. Um, and constantly, there's just, I would say, close to 40% of returns I review for new clients are wrong. We have to go back and fix something. Um, and sometimes it's great. I can get them back a bunch of money. And then other times I have to be the bad guy because they've been doing something very wrong and um, writing off a bunch of stuff they can't legally do for years.
1: I, I always joke around with you whenever you have one of these stories. I'm like, you're, you're the worst tax professional I know. Like, if you look at my taxes, I'm going to be paying more in taxes. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, it's wrong. It'll it'll keep me
1: out of jail, but...
2: Right, and like for me, with real estate, everything carries forward year to year. So I can't keep doing it wrong. Like, we have to fix it because I'm not an unethical idiot. We're going to fix things and then go forward.
1: What are the sort of these most common mistakes you're seeing um, when these people have come to you who had their taxes done by another professional?
2: Yeah, there's a few things that I feel like you should check on your taxes. So this is important to note too. You sign off on your taxes. Even if you're using a professional, at the end of the day it is your signature on it and they're technically not really responsible if there's an error. You looked at it and you said good to go, send it in. It's a flawed system, but it's what we've got. Is that true. Now
0: it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's really scary, <laughs> I didn't right? Why was that until just now?
2: Yeah, at the end of the day you looked at it and gave it the okay. <laughs> so, sort of the few things that I would say to look at, especially if you have um if you own real estate, if you have rentals, Big things that I see done wrong a lot are depreciation, which is when you buy an asset, the IRS gives it a life, says this business asset should last so long, write it off over its life. For most real estate, that's 27 and a half years. Um, the theory being at the end of that time, it'll not it'll be worth less money. That doesn't really happen with real estate, but that's, that's what we got. Um, so with depreciation, though, it is a phantom write-off you're not actually spending money every year to get this write-off so it is something you get to literally have a profitable property with cash in the bank at the end of the year but on your taxes we get to write off this imaginary extra depreciation number and you can end up with a negative amount on your taxes a loss so it's when you hear people saying that they want properties to lose money or they want rental losses you do not actually want to lose money please don't buy properties to lose money this is what you want um, so making sure your depreciation is set up correctly and as advantageously as possible. Um, because the other thing is lenders add back that expense. So it's also not going to hurt you on the lending side where you won't make enough to qualify. So things to kind of check with that. Make sure it's not exact even amounts. When you look at that schedule and there's a depreciation schedule on your tax return, if your taxes don't get handed to you or sent to you with one, ask for it. A lot of accountants don't give it to you by like default. But it exists. Um, Make sure there's not round numbers. Like if your property cost $100,000, there were still closing costs and things. So check that that's there.
1: And if something's Um, getting divided by 27 and a half for the depreciation, it's not coming out to an even number.
2: Yeah, exactly. And the other thing, too, is make sure there's a land value separated out. If the amount you see being depreciated is the full purchase price. They're letting you write off. We can't depreciate land. It doesn't wear out. It is the literal earth. So make sure that is backed out of there or you're going to get a bad awakening later when you get to fix it and pay back that extra yeah, write
0: we off. Talk, can you talk about recapture?
2: Yeah. So when you, when you sell real estate, it's a capital gain more, mostly. With depreciation, the theory is that you got to take this portion of a write off each year at ordinary income rates. So when you sell, you pay it back at ordinary income rates, and it's capped at 25%. So if when you sell a rental, you bought it for $100,000, you've taken 20000 of depreciation, and then when you sell it, your gain is, I don't know, 100000 that first 20000 of it is going to be taxed at a slightly higher rate at your ordinary income rate, and then the balance is taxed at capital gains.
0: So is there any reason you'd ever encourage someone not to depreciate the full amount? capture? Oh,
2: that is an excellent question, and a lot of accountants do encourage that, and they're wrong. So depreciation is allowed or allowable, which means that even if you don't take it, when you sell, you are taxed as though you did. Okay. So if your accountant's like, oh, we're going to save you money, like you actually don't need this and it will keep you from recapture later, they are wrong. And see, this is one of those times I would be the bad guy who showed up and was like, oh, we got to do this. So that is a big thing. Make sure you're getting depreciation. Make sure you're not depreciating land. Um, that is one of the biggest errors I see is on depreciation schedules. That's sort of the biggest this is literally wrong thing. And then there's just a lot of, you could have saved more money things. Mm
1: -hmm. So one of the really contentious things I've seen in sort of talks of depreciation is how to divvy up the land and the building value, right? Because the IRS accepts very particular ways that that divvy can come up that may not be followed by a lot of people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I fight with a lot of people on the internet about this. So you can't just make up percentages. I hear people say that a lot. Like, oh, we just use 80-20. Like there's nothing in the tax world where you just get to sort of ballpark some sort of (laughs) ratio. That's not, that's not anything. Um, The two most common ways, and what I'm going to tell you is look at both or have your tax professional look at both. And a lot of, a lot of firms don't Um, look at the county assessor and see the ratio they use. Please do not use those literal amounts. I had a return from another firm where the accountant, like the person had spent $100,000 on a rental. The accountant went to the assessor website and they allocated like higher amounts. So it was like 150 total split between, you know, 75 and 75. Anyway, long story short, they used literal amounts and let the client have a basis in their property that was like 50 grand more than they actually spent. You don't use the literal numbers. You take whatever the ratio, what is that
1: ratio is and apply
2: it to what you paid. The other one that people don't tend to look at is your appraisal. If you had an appraisal done and they give you a land value, you can use that as well really easily. And there are times, especially in big cities, where the land is most the value. We don't want that. It gives you a lower write-off. Look at both. I'll always double-check both because if the assessor website is only giving us 10% or less on building value, that would be crazy, but something really low for building value, the appraisal might give you a bigger write-off and you can use either. So look at both. There's also like six other ways, but they kind of get more complicated like land comps or rebuild value. But um,
1: I've used the land comps value on depreciation schedule once because the, both the appraisal and the um, tax record showed an absolutely absurd, like had a, it was like a $250,000 um, townhouse and they allocated like, like I figure out which way it went, but they allocated something like two hundred and forty thousand to one and ten thousand to the other, right? And I looked at every property in the neighborhood, and the assessment was the same exact way. So obviously, they just bug praiser like never looked, or the assessor never looked at any of the individual properties and just came up with this for the whole community. And so I did use the land comps value once. Yeah, um,
2: that's a hard one sometimes because a lot of cities where you end up with these high land values. There's not a lot of just land being sold. Yeah. Like so you say. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to comp, but if you can do it, you can use that too.
1: But so basically like when the, when the IRS is going to audit you, you're going to give them either the tax assessment or the appraisal. It's just an incredibly easy way to justify what amount you've been using. And if you're picking, some random number 75 25 split 80 20 there's no justification to that
2: correct and that's something that it's kind of one of those old school things i think i hear a lot of older accounts like we've just always used 80 20 and we just use that on everything like that's not
0: that's always a good reason we've always done it this way that's i always, love that that's always a good reason for <laughs> we're doing stuff
2: yeah we've just always done that um so yeah that's not anything it's not based on any sort of factual allocation it's just a number you liked and was easy to use and that's not anything it's
1: not so this all sort of goes into – depreciation sort of leads into, right, losses, right? So a lot of people like to buy real estate because of the losses and those losses are generated by the depreciation. But those losses are going to phase out, right, once you hit certain incomes from from most individuals.
2: Yeah. This is another time where I feel really bad <laughs> talking to people because on the internet you hear constantly, buy real estate to save on your taxes. Real estate saves you on taxes. Real estate saves you on taxes. And then people call me and they're a high income earning couple and they're like two doctors and they make 700 grand a year and real estate is not going to save them on their taxes. So real estate's great because it creates passive income. So you don't pay self employment tax on that. So most other income you do if you own a pet shop, if you're a real estate broker, anything else. But on rentals, you do not. So what that means, kind of the trade off, is it is passive and any losses they generate are limited based on your income level. There's a passive loss limit. And so if you make over $100,000, it starts to go away. If you're under a hundred, you can deduct up to 25 grand a year in passive losses. Once you're over a hundred, it starts phasing out. And at 150, you can't deduct those losses anymore. I hear this argument a lot from tax professionals where they don't even try to build those losses or tap them out because, oh, the client can't use them. It's important to remember you get to use them at some point. So even if you cannot use those losses, year to year to offset your income, they accumulate. I like to describe it if you've ever pa- played a, an old video game on Super Nintendo where you were a little Italian guy. Um, <laughs> and if you already had the raccoon tail and you got a mushroom, it just like hung out in that box at the top of the screen. Oh, yeah. You couldn't use it right now, but it's there for a situation when you can. <laughs> That's how these losses work. So they just hang out in your little floating box until either your income drops below that amount. Or what happens a lot is when you sell a property – all of those losses, we get to offset the gain by. So you absolutely want to bank those up as large as you can um, because they're going to save you money one day. It just might not be today.
1: Yeah. So we mentioned the depreciation capture earlier that Jack had mentioned. These losses can offset your depreciation recapture right, and offset the capital gain to lower your tax threshold when you sell.
2: Yeah. And what's really cool is that depending on how it's structured. So if you sell a rental and that specific property over the years has gotten a hundred thousand dollars of built up losses and your gain is only 50, we still get to deduct the whole 100. So you can really wipe out a lot of income that year. If you end up selling a property and it itself only has 20,000 of losses and your gain is a hundred, but you have other rentals with losses, we get to bring your gain down to zero, but not create more of a loss. So by having a portfolio of rentals most people tend to sell one every five or seven years anyway because market changes they diversify whatever the reason and then so we'll always have a point to use those losses it just might not be a year-to-year reduction in your taxes so especially if you bought a new rental put a hundred grand into a renovation but you make a bunch of money i'm super sorry you're not going <laughs> See a direct return on that this year, you're going to be pretty upset with me.
1: Well, that that sort of leads into right another very contentious subject, right? So if we are uh, the passive loss limitations leads directly into who does not who do these limitations not apply to? Oh,
2: the chosen ones, the real estate professionals,
1: yeah. <laughs> and we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast that a might qualify because of their profession, or there are actually full time investors, and or there's people listening that. They think that this is the golden goose that they want to qualify for.
2: Yeah, I have people come up with some pretty hair-brained ways to try to qualify for this. And the reason it exists is because there are people where your legitimate business is real estate. So if that's the case, the argument made was that we should get to deduct our losses just like any other business. Mm-hmm. So that's who this was intended for. Like if all you do is real estate and some of your stuff has losses, you should get to deduct it the same as you know, someone who runs a pet shop and has losses.
0: That's like for flipping, you can deduct, I've deducted losses.
2: Yeah. So you just have to be full-time in real estate. So there's more than one test for this. And this is where people get really confused and really hung up. So it's I'm still, really mad. I've
0: seen a bigger pockets. Oh, they get mad. real bad. No, it's all at
2: me. It's just <laughs>
0: I I know. I'm aware.
2: Oh, I'm like Captain Buzzkill. But 750 hours a year, so everyone's like, oh, easy. I can totally do that but you have to spend more time on real estate than any other combined activities.
1: Oh, that's definitely true for me. All of us.
2: Yeah. Right. So anyone doing real estate. Yeah. But for people,
1: if you have a full time job, you're typically working 2000 hours per year, correct? Yeah.
2: Yeah, So then you would have to spend 2001 or like one hour more on real estate,
1: which would mean that you are literally working 16 hours a day every day of the working week, right? So 16 hours working eight hours sleeping, it's not actually possible.
2: No. And there's a ton of court cases on it because people argue this all the time. But like there have been there was a surgeon who tried to claim it. And the tax court was like, I hope you're not a real estate professional. You should literally be a surgeon is what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> but if you have a full time job, it is really hard to claim. Um you have to track your hours very specifically, and I have a uh, an Excel tracker I can send you, Russell, for your listeners to download. But it mimics the IRS's audit law, like what they'll look at. Um, you have to keep really detailed records, and the biggest reason they get thrown out is because people inflate time. They say, you know, it took me an hour to pay my mortgage, or it took six hours to trim the bushes, or whatever, um, and they'll just throw it all out. But kind of the there's a few. So obviously, if you're full time in real estate, if you are a broker, if you are a flipper, if you just have only rentals and that is all your time, you will likely qualify. The other really nice thing is if you're married, if one of the two of you qualifies, it applies to all of your income. So that is sort of the golden goose. I have had clients where one of the two partners had like a low earning job um, and we figured out we could save enough in taxes by them qualifying that it made sense for them to quit their job, become a real estate professional, manage their properties and then they just volunteer now instead with kids and like doing that. But so yeah, only one of the two of you has to qualify to meet this deduction. But boy, if you are both working full time and you're trying to like force this, I can't promise you an audit. But like, it's it's you're it's a high probability. <laughs> you're and also. Like, with the, the, devil. the jail
0: part if it doesn't go well for you on the audit.
2: Yeah, and like probably <laughs> no, not jail, no, but like penalties, penalties yeah, sure. interest. Yeah, just. Get there legally. <laughs> Just figure it out.
1: And so you sort of touched on the fact that there are certain professions here that by nature of what that profession is can qualify for real estate professional status. You mentioned agents and brokers. So, and that's sort of a big, big sort of, right, uh, sort of, I don't even know what the word is. Umbrella. Umbrella. Yeah. Big umbrella of people. But maybe not all... So it doesn't just come from de facto of having a license, correct?
2: Correct. Um, and same thing with like people will say, oh, well, I opened an LLC for my real estate. Now I have a real estate business. No, you do not. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you do, but an LLC is, is nothing. It's a piece
0: of paper. I think three of them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Like my dog could have an LLC. We're not, I don't want to get into that argument
0: with people, but. <laughs> is that actually true no.
1: <laughs> But a lot of people think. I just I will get my license. Now I am a real estate professional and qualified. That's not the case.
0: No, you
2: have to actively engage in the business. So you have to actively be trying to earn a income doing this. So there's a lot of investors who get their license just to be be able to have access to MLS or things like that. That won't do it. Um, and the other thing that. Is kind of a weird one is you can't just be employed in the real estate business. You can't be you have to be more than a ten percent shareholder. So if you just have a W-2 job working at a home inspection company or working at for a real estate broker as like a front desk person, that will not qualify
1: you. And there are some agents that are actually salaried positions at certain brokerages. And so if they're a salaried agent at a brokerage, they wouldn't qualify.
2: Yeah, unless they have some kind of ownership stake, you're just working for someone else. It just happens to be in real estate.
1: So it's the independent contractors, 1099 agents who are Actually working full time in the business, not just having a license yep. that are going to be able to deduct larger losses and that will deduct against their sales income.
2: Oh, 100%. I will, I will go on the record for this one. Every agent should own rentals. Please buy rentals. It puts you in a perfect scenario where it is now just a numbers game. Like I can write out a tax plan where if you buy this amount of real estate per year or you have this dollar value of rental properties – I can zero out pretty much your taxable income. Why wouldn't you want this? And, and this as, is
0: like- you mentioned this earlier, but when you actually go to apply for loans, that uh, the deduction gets recaptured and added back in. It's not like you're showing no income or showing less income.
2: Yeah, exactly. So if, if we are using – so you've probably heard the term cost segregation thrown around. And what that means is instead of 27 years for writing off a property, we break out all the little pieces of it or a cost seg firm does – and so, instead of taking a five thousand deduction every year for twenty seven years, if we can, on the front end, front load like a fifty thousand dollar write off, mm-hmm. well, maybe you're a newer agent, you only make a hundred grand a year, but you buy two new rentals each year. Mm-hmm. Now we have a hundred grand of losses each year. So, um, yeah.
1: So here's a question that comes up a lot. I feel like in the agent communities, is our agents subject to the same time audits log as? An investor would be.
2: Technically, yeah. Anyone claiming real estate professional should be able to prove your time. And it's supposed to be an ongoing log. They don't want to see it, like, recreated when you get audited. Um, So obviously a spreadsheet or something like that is ideal.
1: What about this? Would a, because a lot of agents maintain a calendar on Google Calendar that is very detailed when they're at properties, when they're showing them, Would, would that qualify if it's showing the appropriate amount of hours?
2: It should, in theory. So basically what they want to see is what you're doing, when, on which property, if it relates to your rentals, um, or if it's for your agent business, kind of under what activity this falls, um, and just what you were doing there for that amount of time.
1: That's that's really a personal question for me to see if... Is my tracking going to stand up to audit? Because that's what I... I feel
0: like this whole podcast is a, yeah. Russell has some tax questions for himself. Yeah. I feel like that's
1: the whole... <laughs> I print out my, uh, at the end of the year, my 12 months of Google calendars, and I stick that in my tax file.
2: And that's a good way to do it. And something I tell people, too, as sort of a starting point, because people will be like, is it, I only have three properties, can I reach enough hours? You know? And I'm like, well, I don't know, how much, like, what do you do? Anything that is a repetitive thing for you that you know you do every week or you can do every week, like, or monthly, like... Once a month, you go through the bank statements, you look at the property management reports, maybe you call your property manager. Like, if you can set these reoccurring appointments, that will sort of build you this starting point of, okay, well, based on just this, I know I have 500 hours for the year. Then just, you're less
0: Does driving to the properties count because I book?
2: Good question. Yes, drive time actually does count for this, which is a big one a lot of people miss.
0: So I spend, like, every time I yeah. go to my house, it's, like, two hours for me. That's, like, going to D.C. That's two hours you're right there. We're
2: not driving. Yeah. Yep. Yep, drive time does count. Um, a weird caveat I'll throw out there on this topic of real estate professional, if you might qualify in a few years, like, you're going to retire into rentals full-time or you're planning to become an agent, whatever the case is, you do not want to max out your rental losses before that point. When you become a real estate professional, it doesn't free up any earlier losses. It's only from that point forward. And then especially if we're looking at all of your properties together, we have to make an election to treat all your rentals as one business. Otherwise, you'd have to meet 750 hours on every rental property. And once we lump them into one business, you would have to sell all of your rentals to access those. And that's a,
1: that election is a pretty common mistake people make, right? Yeah. A lot
2: of people don't make that. I've seen that thrown away by IRS agents, too, because they're like, ha, <laughs> yep, you would have had to meet it in every single property.
1: Which is not feasible. Yeah. And. So you mentioned you mentioned a couple of things here. You touched on the 500 and the 750. Can we talk about the material participation part cuz I think this is a part that messes up a lot of people that they don't it's a fairly complicated distinction.
2: Yeah, there's different levels of participation. And so something important to on real estate professional. So you have to hit 750. It is not just that 500 material participation. That's sort of a lower level that we can use for some other things. I'll talk about that in a second. Um But something that is important to note is any of your office-related kind of administrative time only counts if you're actively involved in the property as well. So this can hang up a lot of people too because they'll want to sit home and like only look at spreadsheets all day and bump up to 750 hours. But if you are fully hands-off, this is a totally unrelated, this is a passive property really, you don't touch it, uh, you can't count those hours. You only get sort of the boring office work hours if you are physically, not physically, but like actively involved in the property as well.
0: So if you didn't
1: have a property manager, would that be pretty much you'd qualify yeah. by definition? Yeah. So here's a question, the because so many people do want property managers, right? And they want to be as hands off. Um, if you are outsourcing your, your properties to being property managed, is it realistic that you can qualify for real estate professional status?
2: You can. Um, and it, part of it comes down to what you're controlling or what you're not. If you are fully hands-off, like, they get to do everything. They don't have to call you for anything except it literally burning to the ground. It's harder. If you are still sort of involved at some point in the decision-making, they run new tenants past you or any major repairs. So, um,
1: But even, and even in that situation, realistically, though, it's going to be hard to meet the hours, right?
2: It does become hard, yeah. It is hard with rental properties. That's why when people want to use that route, it gets tricky. Um and like if you have people working for you, we can count some of your time. Like if you have contractors at the property and you're sort of overseeing them, but it has to be reasonable.
1: Because seven hundred and fifty hours is like what, fifteen hours a week? It's a yeah. significant it amount of time. If you're spending
0: fifteen hours a week at one property, that's a bad property yeah. <laughs> like, like, like to that property. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah,
2: like Yeah, and you have to be actually doing stuff and um so time that doesn't qualify, right? Like Drive time is a big one that gets missed. That does qualify. Thank God. Re- <laughs> researching new properties does not qualify. If one more person calls me to say like they sit at home looking on Zillow all day because they might buy a rental in another state, no, you can't have oh, those hours. I,
1: I think you just caught Sarah in that. Like <laughs> both of us. No, no,
2: that's all that Jack does is yeah. look at new properties. Yeah. Pointing at him, I was like, I but both of us. here's a
1: question because as real estate brokers, though, yeah, is towards our brokering hours. um, that is actually what we do is look at right, and research right. of properties.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that is part of your active job. Yeah. If you have four rentals and you would like to buy more rentals and you are just sitting – But it's not going
1: towards material in participation phone. in the property, but it is part of the job of being a real estate professional if you're a broker or an agent.
2: Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's kind of two, different, two yeah. different groups of people, the people who are doing this as a profession, finding properties for others. If you're just looking for properties for yourself – like, no, I've literally had people try to loop in, like watching flip shows on HGTV and reading yeah. Magazines. Yeah.
1: like, well, it, it's funny you say that because I've been meaning on uh, telling Jack and Sarah here that they should watch Million Dollar Listing New York to learn about <laughs> to learn sales techniques. I actually think it is very good, uh, edu- like an education for being an agent. <laughs>
2: your Boss writes you a letter and requires you to do it. If it is required for your job, yeah. we've got a better chance of counting those
0: out. Is selling Sunset? Is that where does that rank on the
2: uh,
1: that, that one? Might uh, I mean, I there's not much it. educational to choose to learn from there.
2: There you go. We'll have Russell do a formal review of which shows are accurate. Yeah,
1: there you go. <laughs> Um, So so with a real estate agent owning rentals um, and being able to not be limited by the passive losses, um, do you work with any agents who have returns where you are seeing significant reductions in their income and taxes? Um, And like what's the best case scenario you've looked at for these?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've had I've had clients where if especially if you buy a larger property like an apartment building or something, we're on a cost segregation where there's a
1: huge amount of yeah, and if you're cost segregating and getting it depreciating over five years or something, the items
2: yeah. So the reason it, what happens in a cost segregation is like we said in the big one, it's 27 years for like your property normally. A cost segregation lets us break out things into shorter lives, um, and you can actually in theory do this without a cost segregation if these are new expenses. So if you buy an existing property, you need something pretty formal to break out these components. Um, and why it matters is that anything with a life of less than 20 years qualifies for something called bonus depreciation, lets us write off the whole thing in year one. So on renovations, when people do that on a, on a property, something that gets missed a lot is land improvements. Land improvements are 15 years, and that's driveways, fences, landscaping. I've been able to write off 10, 15 grand of landscaping on a property, and their former accountant never asked what they did so they would just put you know hundred thousand dollar renovation 27 years on the depreciation yeah. schedule it's actually really funny you
0: say that my accountant was just asking for what the repairs were when i had the repair bill because i just like i had like the receipt it was like you know home depot and i just kind of sent him the stuff he's like what were they i was thinking like what well, does he care but i guess that makes sense yeah you know? we
2: care and it if- I know it is annoying. It is very annoying. People get very <laughs> annoyed with me playing a hundred questions, but it's like, the more I know, the more I can find these weird little loopholes where we can break more and more out to be a write-off. If you do not want to deal with that and you're like, I'm willing to pay a $50,000 variance here to not have to answer these questions. Great. It's a pain
0: because it came in, like, it's like the Home Depot. Receipt. I'm like, I don't actually remember like what I bought. I have to go back in and like figure out the actual like receipt that emailed me. It's like,
1: yeah. So a little He's tip I, a little tip I do along those lines is at the end of every month, I print out my credit card statement and I make a little note about what, what project I was working on so that I know was it an expense? Was it a capital improvement? Cause when you're looking at a year's worth of bank statements, trying to prepare them to give them to your tax professional, um, you're going to have no idea what you did last January or February in terms of, did you, re- was that a stove i bought at home depot was it paint? you know
2: yeah and i think on home depot and lowe's too if you get a business account with them i believe you can log in and just see all of your purchase history yeah
1: yeah i mean that's great tip is doing that um maybe i should do that or
2: here's a super great tip do bookkeeping (laughs) if you actually keep track of these things through the year um we're not trying to think backwards
0: but it's like, I, that's great advice. But then it's like, whenever it's like, oh, that's my next year's problem. I need to worry about that now. I that's next also, year's
2: yes. problem. I should also eat healthy and exercise. Yeah, like all these What's um, next? That's really funny because when people ask me, what do you recommend for bookkeeping? What's the best software? That's literally what I tell them is it's like a diet. Literally the best one is whatever one you will keep doing because we all hate it. No one wants to do it. But if there's one you hate little less and you can actually make yourself do it, that one is best for yeah, you.
1: Yeah, I've owned rentals now for over a decade and – uh, I I just started using QuickBooks for this past year. Um, I because I used to just do it by paper on my credit. I still like have my system, but like the QuickBooks is vastly improving, like the amount of time I have to spend on this.
2: And it's hard with with rentals, like when that's what you're into, because month to month your cash flow isn't huge. If you're an agent, you're making four hundred grand in a year. Okay, pay for a bookkeeper. Don't worry about it. That is not a good use of your time. If you're getting $100 rents because you bird a property and that's your cash flow, you can't spend $300 a month on a bookkeeper. So I get it, but try to figure out some kind of a system that works for you. Um, Even if you're using a dedicated credit card for each property, a lot of credit card and banks online now let you categorize your expenses. You can name your own categories. Use that sort of like bookkeeping, but just have some kind of a system.
1: And QuickBooks is vastly cheaper than it was before. So I remember in my previous life running a different business, um, we used to spend over a thousand dollars a year on QuickBooks and I think it, I'm spending 150 a year now on it. Like it's, the price of it is vastly, vastly dropped.
0: Can we talk a little bit about LLC? Um, I'm very dedicated to, you know, the right credit cards, but about piercing the LLC and all that stuff I think most people probably are not doing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so beginning caveat, I'm not an attorney, so mm. take anything I say as a stranger on a podcast, Okay. but, um, LLCs come up a ton in real estate. There is no tax savings. Um, there is literally you do not, you get to write off the cost of setting up your LLC. And that is the only extra write off you get. There's no difference between having an LLC or not having one. So that is the big kind of first thing I hear people all the time. where are like, I set up six LLCs. I'm so stoked on this. And I spent $10,000 for this big law firm to do it correctly. I'm going to save so much on my taxes. No, you're not <laughs> like, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Um, but with an LLC what i would say is over the years probably 85% of the books i've looked at aren't kept well enough to not pierce that corporate veil so the kind of the idea with an LLC is separating your personal and your business assets and you have to keep them totally separate And almost everyone ends up putting, you know, their personal gym membership on their business LLC or, like, all kinds of weird stuff gets looped in. Or you're buying stuff for your house and three rentals all at once, and they don't take the time to separate the transactions. So most people just – I feel like people love having an LLC. It is, like, a security blanket. They really like it. That's my thing.
0: Like, I don't know if it's Kentucky, but I feel like it is. And so it's really, really like, it feels good. For
2: sure. And, like, if it makes you feel great – Awesome. Have an LLC, set it up well. Um, Good insurance goes a long way too. But if you have an LLC, you have to have individual books for it. um, And it has to have its own credit card and bank account. And as soon as you start intermixing stuff, you've already kind of pierced that corporate veil.
1: And like you said, this is as simple as you're at a restaurant, you accidentally pay with the wrong credit card.
2: Yep. It happens often. Um, And I don't Again, I'm not an attorney, but I've been in real estate for a minute now and I'm on bigger pockets constantly and I've never seen the post of like my LLC saved me. I've I don't know who has that experience, but I haven't come across it. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I see a lot of preaching for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've seen plenty of people without LLCs get sued, and they are just fine. You know what? Because that's that's why we have insurance. And
0: a good umbrella and policy is good, too. Yeah.
2: My theory, too, is if you're going to pay an attorney a bunch of money to do something, instead of setting up an overly elaborate structure, having good contracts and leases that like very well protect you is the better cost of money. But I'll have clients who will spend... Ten grand, having a like a very elaborate thing set up, and they've got like two rentals in like St. Louis that are worth hundred grand total. Um, but then their lease is literally one they found
1: in a Facebook group and printed off. <laughs>
0: like, and like I, I think they have an umbrella policy of like I don't know, it's like two or three million, and it's like
1: umbrella it's like insurance. Grand, it's
0: like two grand a year or something.
1: Umbrella <laughs> insurance is incredibly cheap. Yeah, for the incredibly. Of you get
0: and it covers like everything. Your car, it's not just it's anything that you have insurance on. It just ups your limits on that.
2: And with LLCs, what happens a lot too is people don't realize what they're setting up because again, everyone online is like, they're so easy. Do it yourself. You don't need a professional. And then you've got, like I just had someone talk to me who had six different LLCs set up for each property but put him and his wife on every single one. And I was like, well, now you have six partnership tax returns. Were you expecting that this year? Because that's expensive. That is very expensive. And he was like, oh, I've got two other partnerships too then. And it got even worse. So like a lot of people set up LLCs incorrectly or not really, they don't really set up on what they're attending for. Well, that's
1: interesting you mentioned that because actually Jack um, had an LLC that was for one business, right? It was for an auto garage or something
0: just when I had started it back.
1: In, yeah. When it was but that's like, what the original intention was. Yeah, and I never actually used it for that. And we're using it for flipping. And at one point, one of our title attorneys was like, Hey, you know, we need to make it so that this LLC can flip properties. And yeah. she amended it. She fixed it for actually, us. I think
0: you said it was probably fine. but it was a good, Yeah. It was a good,
1: but it's, it's just one of those things, right? Like as lay people, um, even as real estate professionals, we're still lay people in the specifics, right? Whether it's tax liability, um, we don't know what we're looking at. I, mean, I, I don't.
0: Honestly, you said you should read the returns. Like, I've never read the actual thing the accountant gives me. I'm just like, yeah, hey, he is professional. I hope it's right. Like, yeah. I don't actually read what he's.
1: Let me tell you, I don't I don't read my return either. I sign it. I, I kind of look at the numbers and say, just, is count. this about what I'm expecting? Yeah. yeah.
2: See, and this is, <laughs> like, I was just talking to Russell about one of my, like, not my favorite things, but I see some weird stuff on returns. And just recently, I had a return with their prior accountant. Just a typo, right? A typo. It yes. happens to everyone. But for mortgage interest on a property that had $4,000 in rent, um, they added some extra numbers. So instead of $1,500 of mortgage interest, it was $1.5 million. <laughs> $1.5 million of mortgage interest, a loss of $1.2 million. Their income was too high, so they didn't get to deduct it, luckily. <laughs> But, like, their accountant didn't notice a $1.5 million expense on a $40,000 rental. Uh, he didn't <laughs> notice either
0: and signed <laughs> off on the tax return. Oh, yeah, that's like you should know.
1: So we just wrapped up talking to Natalie, and we're splitting this episode in two episodes. But uh, Natalie, tell us where we can find more about you.
2: Yeah, so on on my website is Claudia Tax and Consulting. That's where you can join the waitlist to be a client for next year, um, find some general information. You can find me on Instagram at Kaladi Tax Boss on Facebook as Natalie Kaladi. Um And,
1: and then- spell Kaladi here because that's uh, gonna that that's gonna get a lot of people.
2: Uh, okay, so it is K O L O D I J. I know there's a silent J. I'm super sorry, um, but it's Ukrainian, so you can't even be mad about that right now. Um, and then you can find me on TikTok at um, R E Tax Strategist.
1: All right, we'll talk to you guys next week.
0: Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts.